Hello and welcome to the Hear Hear podcast. I'm your host, Karen Gordon. I'm an audiologist and senior scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, and a professor at the University of Toronto. Our goal with these discussions is to explore new ideas that may help people use devices like cochlear implants to hear. Transcripts of these discussions are available alongside the recordings. Okay, welcome back to the Hear Hear podcast. It's wonderful that I am joined again by Dr. Sharon Cushing and Dr. Blake Papson, your Hear Hear podcast team. We are delighted to introduce this discussion that we had with Dr. Viji Iswar. She is an audiologist. She did her PhD at Western University. She became a team member with us at SickKids doing her postdoctoral work for a couple of years. I know I, oh. I remember VG well. Yeah, she's she was a wonderful, wonderful member of our team. And uh, she just did such great work while she was here looking at um, cortical processing of bilateral cochlear implant stimulation. On a, on a ginormous data set, like this is the most amazing data set. And it really took somebody who was really, really incredibly dedicated to get through that work and, and produce what she did. At the time of the recording, Fiji was an assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin in Madison and is now working at the National Acoustics Laboratory in Australia. Dr. Iswar, I'm just really excited to say hello and uh, welcome you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's a great pleasure to be here. We know each other well, um, having um, worked together in Toronto and in my lab, and um, it it was just such a wonderful time working with you. Tell me a, a bit about how you got to um, a career in hearing research? My interests in hearing research actually started um, in my undergrad degree. So in India, um, the universities offer an undergraduate degree in audiology and speech language pathology. Um, And then I specialized in hearing or audiology alone in my master's degree. I always find it wonderful that clinical people want to do research. And so I think that that clinical experience, whether it's current or distant, just keeps you grounded in a way that you have patients in mind that inform the questions you're asking and the solutions that you're finding. The early days of implantation, we would sort of push a button and then see if they did better and push another button and see if they did better. And then the buttons became bigger and more complicated and the paradigms and the strategies we used uh, equally complicated. People always said, well, what's the outcome that you're talking about? And I said, "Uh, well, I don't know if they're happy in their life, not just um, how to make them hear better, but what they do in school and who they marry and what they do and who they interact with, how they interact, um, their balance. So really research is the key to the whole um, clinical mission. It's not so common for people to want to get into academic research work. What do you think um, inspired you to switch uh, from clinical to research? 
So being a clinician um, and having had worked with adults as well as children um, in in multiple places um, sort of made clear the shortcomings of our current approaches. So as I worked longer, um, I realized that there are several aspects of clinical work that could improve. I did my PhD in the National Center of Audiology at Western University in London, Ontario. In my PhD, I developed a method that could be used to measure hearing aid benefit using EEG alone. One of the things to remember is that these hearing aids are very sensitive to the type of input they get. Um, So we want to be using speed stimuli, speed stimuli as close to natural speech or natural running speech as possible. We also want to be evaluating all these uh, hearing aid benefit um, and hearing in, in a frequency specific manner because hearing loss varies by frequency, hearing aid gain varies by frequency, and therefore hearing aid benefit also varies by frequency. The main findings from my PhD work is that it is possible to evaluate or rely on EEG to predict outcomes um, in children with hearing loss um, in a frequency-specific manner. So we always look at, you know, these outcomes of how the the system is actually developing and how how things are, are adapting and changing. Kids are little black boxes, right? It's a powerful thing um, because, you know, what you do and what you don't do is going to impact on their development. What we concentrate on most in audiology is access to sound. Is it audible across the range of frequencies that we need for them um, to hear for speech understanding? We do have some nice tools to do that in babies, um, and we use them to screen hearing loss at, you know, first day of life. So that's great. Um, But then what do we do about it? And and that's what Vigie's looking at. What would you say to clinicians who are kind of afraid of of uh, doing this procedure, there's more equipment, all the electrodes, as opposed to just watching the baby? Oh, well, um, I think no pain, no gain. These tools, I think, are going to be most useful when we can't have another way of assessing if the child can hear sounds or not. So if we have a child who's been fit with hearing aids, let's say by three months of age, we are likely waiting until they're about eight months or so before we can clinically assess how well they hear with hearing aids. We know that that period is quite critical for language development. So rather than wait, putting in the effort and using techniques like EEG um, at three months of age or as soon as the child has been fit with hearing aids, if the child can't hear through hearing aids, it's likely that the hearing test was accurate and the hearing aids are doing what they need to do. And for the parent, it's actually encouraging to see the differences with and without a hearing aid. Um, And it's encouraging for the parent to see that the child's brain is picking up signals um, and that hearing aids are are of benefit or useful or providing access to speech. It is a struggle to achieve hearing aid retention um, in the early years of life. So 
showing a parent that the hearing aid is of benefit in an objective manner could um, help parents persevere through that phase. I think you raise a really, really important point, which is around um, ensuring that development is actually happening. There, there might be particular populations or special circumstances where we would might need to use these more often? Yeah, absolutely. So when I mentioned about the eight-month mark, it's for a child who's typically developing otherwise. child with additional comorbidity might never be able to perform clinical behavioral tests. So, so EEG as a way of measuring hearing aid benefit is not just in the baby phase, um, but it could also be for children who are not able to participate in testing um, because of an additional developmental disability. I wanted to know, tell me when I see some incredibly uh, challenged child go silent and listen and move their head and sway when music comes through the cochlear implant, give me some of that joy. It's not language-based. I think what you're saying here is that that system includes the whole human and the response that the whole human has. Yeah. And, and then, of course, the seat of that is going to be uh, the cortex. And it's in, in Vigi's work and Dan Wong's work and the work that's gone on in the lab for really 25 years or so. So, yeah, it's true that cortex studying auditory areas can tell us the perceptible, well, the auditory percept is reaching the source, but nowhere near telling us what meaning it's carrying. Yes, that's true. Although we spend a lot of time thinking about some children and wondering whether the access that they have through hearing aids is enough and whether we should push beyond what they have to put them into surgery to get a cochlear implant. Mm -hmm. And that is the question I think that Vigi is working on is what's enough through a hearing aid for hearing in early life. And I think that's a moving target, right? Because, you know, what was enough 10 years ago or 20 years ago is very different than what we would consider enough now as we see sort of implant candidacy change, as we can do implants safely, as we can do them quicker, then we want more. And so the enough gets bigger, right? And well, it may be also not a target that we can hit with one tool. You know, we tend to focus outcomes on, you know, speech recognition or, you know, what is the word, but how's the word being said with what intention, anger, flirtatiousness, you know, all of those things. But I think even more basic to audiology, you know, it could be that the brainstem just carries sound differently. In this person, that's what Vigi's measuring. You put an electrode on the surface of the head and you send in some sounds and you watch what the brain stem can do with more complex input. Mm -hmm. And, and that'll tell you maybe something more than what you knew before and may be able to predict any delay in speech and language acquisition. And that would include, as you get more complex prosody and under speech, understanding communication, that interaction, this understanding that somebody's making a joke. You so know. we're looking for connection to humanity. Yes. Ultimately, what you're looking for is that the brain is responding like it should to the signal. 
these are cortical responses to the sound. Is that right? Um, the main method that we have been trying to use is more brainstem dominated. Um, it's it has some cortical contributions, but it is mainly brainstem dominated. If the child is asleep, that doesn't affect um, the response amplitude. So um, it, it it is beneficial when the child is asleep, um, which ha can happen a lot in young babies. So the setup would be something like what you might see in the um, newborn screening? Because it's a brainstem um, dominated response, it is as simple as placing three electrodes, one on the head, one maybe behind the ear or on the nape. Um, and one on a collarbone or the other ear or low forehead. A child has a earphone in their ear and the sounds are playing. And we could be doing that with, with, with a hearing aid or without a hearing aid to, and then compare. So with a, without a hearing aid and with a hearing aid, what is the, what is the improvement that you see in the brain signal um, and how that correlates with how well they hear? We are also trying to understand what developmental changes there would be in such responses with and without hearing loss. We still have a lot more to understand about, for example, how just having hearing loss would influence that type of response. If those responses can be used reliably to predict speech understanding, for example, um, and not just tell us about access to sound. Um, so these are things that we are continuing to study. This is great collaborative work that you're continuing to do. Yes, I'm continuing to collaborate with David Purcell and, and Susan Scully. I'm beginning to look into how we could tap into cortical responses for the same stimuli. If that is successful, we could be looking at brainstem as well as cortical level processing of sounds with and without hearing aids. Some people think, oh, much more important to measure what the cortex is doing because that's where hearing really happens. But the, if it doesn't go through the brainstem properly, then, you know, maybe that's the, the bottleneck that we need to be focused on. What, what do you think? Both are important um, and both offer sort of different benefits. Um, in terms of practical benefits, um, brainstem responses are more robust as in the amplitude doesn't get attenuated if the child falls asleep. Cortical responses are definitely more complex um, in terms of the amount of processing that can happen and it would likely correlate with perception a lot more um, than brainstem responses will. There are situations where we know that brainstem processing may be scrambled and not doing as well, but cortical processing will make up for it. So I think it's important to look at both. We just need that next kick to say what of these billions of ways as our, as our computing capacity gets better and better and better, and we start to understand different regions and their network abilities. Um, once we tackle that, we're going to start to go, oh, that's what joy looks like. Program the implants to give joy. Get the joy, the joy wave. That's what I want, the one where I'm at peace, where I understand what's being said. It has to do with frequency uh, characteristics. It has to do with clarity. It has to do with timing. Give me the joy thing. That means I understood everything and I'm comfortable on earth right now.
That's the one I want. I want the I, joy wave. I love it. I we're I I will um have to express that to Vigi that she wants to uh develop a protocol for establishing joy. Yes. Yep. Uh, through anybody can do it. VG can. If anyone can do it, VG can. So, um, but I, I do think, you know, it, it is um, going to be something that she's going to look at for her whole career in that case. And she's at the pretty early stages when I asked her to think back to her postdoc experience. Now that she's a faculty member, she described it so well. She said, you know, it's the bridge between being a student and a completely independent faculty scientist. And she said it was wow. like, like being a teenager. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's amazing. That's a good way to say it. The postdoc phase is quite interesting. Um, so you, you feel like you should be independent, but you know you're not quite independent. It's more like being a teenager. Right? The first postdoc experience with you taught me a lot of different things. So I think the first postdoc with you for me um, really helped steer my thinking towards more basic questions that I could ask um, about how childhood hearing loss could affect auditory development. The second postdoc for me was um, sort of a continuation of my PhD. At the end of the PhD, we obviously found limitations in what we did, and we wanted to improve that. For you, it doesn't just span across time. Uh, it spans across so many different places. <laughs> um, I think you've mentioned uh, at least four different countries that, that your training has been done in. So tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, all this moving uh, in, in support of your career. When I moved for the first time out of India to Southampton um, in England, I did not think I'll move as much. Um, but in the pursuit of hearing research, um, I've just moved um, where the appropriate opportunity has been. Um, so I, I moved from India to um, Southampton, England to do my master's in audiology. And then I moved to Brighton, um, which was my first job in, in the UK. Um, I worked as an audiologist in, um, the, uh, with adults um, in the National Health Service there. Um, and then I soon became interested in pediatrics. I moved to Glasgow for a couple of years to work as, as a pediatric audiology, audiologist in, in a children's hospital. Um, and two years in, I paid off all my student loans and then, and then I, I wanted to go back to school because I reached a point where um, I began to observe a lot of limitations in clinical work and it sort of intersected with my research interests. There was a PhD opportunity in, in Canada, so I wrote to them and then I moved um, spent four years there. Then I got to know about your work um, and I wanted to increase my area of work or research experience um, from just hearing aids and EEG to cochlear implants and EEG and neuroplasticity in general. That's how I came to your lab in Toronto and then I went back to London because we won a grant and that could fund my second postdoc. And then I moved to the U.S., the, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, 
Um, actually, I moved here because uh, my husband, who also does similar work um, in research, got a tenure track job and I got hired as a teaching faculty. But I tried to keep up my research productivity during that time. And the last year, I got a tenure track job in the same university. That is such an accomplishment. It really, really is. One of the advantages I've had uh, with moving uh, is not just pursuing you know, my research interest or areas of recent interest, but also meeting all the best people in, in the field and knowing how they run successful labs. I think that's um, been one of the main things I've learned, um, how you uh, motivate students, how, how you um, have a collegial working productive team and how you keep people happy. What do you think was the success, you know, going into new situations and new places? I mean, obviously change is difficult um, because you're needing to adapt to these new situations. Um, and at, at the time of change and at the time of adapting, it feels difficult. It's helpful to remember that it's all happening for a reason. It's all going to pay off. I think it is important to remember that she spent a long while getting there uh, and she literally moved all over the globe to pursue this scientific career. A scientific career really is many years and science does take some time. I think Viji and many of the other students who've, who've come from you know, different parts of the world to study with us, they understand things I will never, ever know. I learn a lot from them watching their just capacity to overcome obstacle after obstacle that we in the established scientific community keep throwing in front of these bright young people. And they just crawl over them like they were like nothing. So being a Canadian, I don't think I've ever really had to crawl over much except big snow drifts. Uh, I think doing research is one of those things that you have to think beyond the world that you are living in and the context that you are and think about language as such a fundamental part of all human experience, we are all looking for that that same um, development uh, for children all over the world. When I think about VG, you know, this is a girl who loves what she does, right? And, um, and you meet her and she is this smiling, humble human, you know, that she got through her own hard work. Although research is so independent, uh, at the end of the day, there's still um, a group and a team that puts it all together. And so having a good team is, is really a big part of it. In research, everybody's an independent thinker. You're trained to be an independent critical thinker. So you get really critical of not only your work, of everybody else's work, and then you have to work together. And it's not that easy to you know, accept everything and, and there's going to be compromises somewhere. I think um, remembering and knowing that it's for the progression of science, for the progression of, you know, clinical outcomes, for improving like lifestyle for individuals who need help. Um, I think that keeping that big picture in mind um, really improves 
or, or reminds us of what's common between all of us, uh, because what we are trying to achieve is, is more than what is important at an individual level. One of the things I've learned from other labs and other mentors is to have a multidisciplinary team. Um, because if we have people who are trained like us, we all tell, tend to think the same way and we don't diversify our thinking at all. So it sounds like you're really transitioning into being a mentor, uh, which is wonderful. It is a different um, mindset. But having been a postdoc for a couple of years and then being in that um, teaching position sort of prepped me towards this position. research never stays the same. <laughs> we were always looking for, for new ways to do things. Change is, is really an inherent part of what we do. One of the biggest changes on a personal side for you, I don't know whether you want to share um, what it's like to ha- be a new mom and, and work uh, in a, a pretty demanding job. Yeah, it's been quite a change Knowing how your day will go made it very easy, how your day or week will go made it very easy to plan writing, meetings, teaching, and so on and so forth. And in the past year, with the addition of a new family member, um, I've had to divide that time. (laughs) It's not reduced my love for research any less, um, but I think I've, I've learned to be more efficient because I know I have limited time. I hear from people who are trying to find the balance. I just want to encourage people that the balance is different for everybody. I think um, I've learned um, to have a better work-life balance. In a way, it was forced on me, I would say, because <laughs> you, you, you can only play with your child and not be working at the same time. I, I feel like that's actually brought better work-life balance for me. She's a new mom. That's so, funny. yeah, and I had an opportunity to, to discuss with her that balancing of being an early career scientist and a new mom and in a new place, mm-hmm. new country. I think she said it just has made her be more efficient at everything because you really have to divide time and uh, try to focus in when with whatever you're doing at that moment. It's a beautiful thing. And and I'm so happy to hear because the last time I saw VG, um, we were both at the AAS conference. And, um, you know, the the first time I ran into her at that conference, I was busy pushing my son in a stroller. And, um, you know, she took such joy in getting to meet him. I wonder if you want to share some some of your thoughts on on what what works for you. I think back with with tons of fondness now. about even the decision about having children. It wasn't an easy one for me. Um, and I love what I do. And you know, this may seem selfish to some, but I was worried about how a child might impact that enjoyment. And I'm putting it out there and being vulnerable because there may be other people who feel this way, but it was honestly, I, w- I was worried about that. You know, what if what I've loved changes? Um, and it didn't. Um, I just recognized that, you know, I could welcome a love like I've never known before when I became a mom. 
you know, for me, it's more about work-life integration. And I think it's different for everybody. Um, some people need to keep them separate. Um, for me, I needed to integrate them. And I think, you know, that came back to having, you know, you welcome me with a newborn infant that I was breastfeeding into the lab meetings and, and, and coming back, you know, in ways, you know, that I could and, and I was welcomed. You know, my son's been all over the world with me. And I've recognized that just for him, home is where I am doesn't have to be his own bed. Him being there with me has been, it's important for me and I think it's important for him. It's been a little tougher with COVID, um, but you know, he says, still says to me, mom, when are we getting back on an airplane? So I, I, I really get that. And I, I'm so happy that Vigie's doing the same thing and shared her experiences as well. So thank you both for being so open. I just think that your journey from um, through your training into your your faculty position is just so inspiring for people to to hear. I've also really appreciated hearing all about really important work uh, that you've done. I really look forward to using your research tools in the future. With that, I, I want to thank you so much for being a part of this podcast and spending the time chatting with me. Thank, thank you for the invitation again. You can catch other episodes of the Hear Here podcast. There's a link on our website, search Archie's Cochlear Implant Lab, SickKids Research Institute, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hear Here podcast is put together by me, Dr. Karen Gordon, with my colleagues at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto, Canada, Drs. Blake Papson and Sharon Cushing, with a tremendous production and advisory team, Sophia Olazola, Rachel Better, and Maria Kahn. Our wonderful Hear Here podcast music was composed and performed by Dr. Blake Papson. Thank you.